You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Let me welcome all of you to the Carnegie Endowment this afternoon. Uh, my name is Ashley Tellis. I'm a senior associate here at the Endowment working on different issues relating to South Asia. Uh, for those of you who've come here before, welcome back. For those of you who've come here for the first time, we hope it'll be the first of many. Uh, the subject that we are going to discuss this afternoon is a subject of great importance, of course, to Pakistanis uh, themselves, because the subject focuses on Pakistan's economic circumstances and a reflection on its likely trajectory. Oh, sure. Is it on? Yeah, it is on. Okay, I'll bring it closer. The subject that we are focusing on tonight, this afternoon, uh, is a subject of importance, obviously, to Pakistanis, because we're going to be talking about Pakistan's economic circumstances and the likely trajectory uh, that the Pakistani economy uh, is likely to sail along, uh, given the circumstances that Pakistan finds itself in. I think it's almost commonplace today to think of Pakistan in crisis. And when one talks about crisis, most people think about the security situation, which is troubled and has been troubled for a while. Uh, people talk about social strife. Uh, there are great fears about rising Islamic extremism and a whole range of other social circumstances that have been unsettled now for at least a decade. But I would make the argument that underlying that set of problems is something that is uh, far more dangerous and certainly something that impacts uh, many millions of Pakistanis, and that is the state of the Pakistan economy. Uh, there are different stories that one can tell about how the Pakistan economy has come to uh, the past that it has. There was a time a few decades ago when Pakistan was seen as really one of the stars of the developing world, when it had growth rates that really were impressive by any standards uh, set in the third world. And if one looks at the Pakistani economy today, obviously uh, you're almost struck with a feeling of nostalgia for those days that have gone by. There is an economic story about why Pakistan has gotten here. Uh, we had Akbar Zaidi a few months ago talk about this issue from the perspective of how the defense complex or the security complex has choked uh, the Pakistani economy. If you ask uh, an economist, he would have other kinds of perspectives that have to do with uh, low savings rates, uh, the inability of the state uh, to tax its economy sufficiently in order to create public finances, poor investments that have been made in human capital, and so on and so forth. And so there is an economic story that is worth delving into in greater detail than has been done before. There's also a story at the level of political economy because many of the economic decisions which are proximate causes of Pakistan's problems are deeply rooted in political choices that the Pakistani state has made either because of constraints or because of other considerations. And those are the kinds of issues that are also worth examining in some detail. Uh, we have two individuals this afternoon who are superbly qualified uh, to undertake this kind of a reflection. Uh, 
The first, of course, is Paul Dross, who is the uh, IMF's uh, representative. He's a senior economist uh, at the IMF and was the resident uh, in Pakistan not many years ago, who will be speaking to us on the basis of the few uh, weeks ago on the Article 4 consultations. The Article 4 consultations come out of the process uh, leading from the IMF support of the Pakistan economy. And this is a wonderful report that I commend to you. In fact, we have a few copies on the outside. It's also on the IMF's website uh, that takes stock of where Pakistan is today, what the structural challenges are, and offers uh, short to medium-term prognosis of where Pakistan will be going. Uh, so Paul Ross will speak to us based on that report, uh, give us his take on Pakistan. And I have invited Milan Vaishnav, who is a, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Global Development just across the street, uh, to spend a few minutes after Paul speaks, uh, offering his reflections to stimulate a discussion, after which we will open it to the floor and carry the conversation. Uh, so without further ado, let me invite Paul to take the floor and give us your reading of where the Pakistan economy is today. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to stand up. Sure. Can everybody hear me? No. I can't hear you. Try speaking directly to the mic. Hello? It's on. I just, it doesn't seem to be. Break about six inches. <laughs> Good idea. Hello? Good. All right. Well, look, first of all, thank you to Ashley and to all his colleagues here at the Carnegie Endowment, and thank you to you all for coming. Um, thank, we're very happy to be here and to have this opportunity to share an IMF perspective on the Pakistan economy. Um, there's a handout, which I think you've all got, that has an outline of what I'm going to say. Um, and also, as Ashley's already said, there are copies of the Article 4 staff report outside, if you would like one. And the last slide of the handout gives the link to it on the IMF website. So if you want to download it or look at it online, it's there. And that has a lot more details about an updated perspective on the economy of Pakistan uh, that we prepared at the end of last year and was discussed by our board uh, last month. I'd like to start with the key messages that I wanted to convey to you today um, about the Pakistan economy. First of all, Pakistan has a lot of potential. It has a young population. Uh, it's in a vibrant part of the world, by which I mean it's close to a number of very fast-growing economies that if it can link up with, it can benefit from. Second, various factors have uh, led to lackluster economic performance in the past years. Um, some are non-economic, like natural catastrophes, security issues, political instability. Some are economic. Some of the policy choices made were not optimal and have held back growth, have held back employment growth, and have uh, reduced uh, the speed at which poverty should or has been reduced. Now, looking ahead, the risks and vulnerabilities have grown, both as a result of domestic policies and a result of a more hostile world ec economy that we're living in nowadays. And so the last message is it's time to take measures to 
reduce the vulnerabilities in the Pakistan economies and also to take measures to move the economy onto a much higher and more inclusive growth trajectory. Now, in terms of my presentation today, I'm going to talk about key features in the Pakistan economy um, and then talk about past economic outcomes and then look forward at the outlook and, make, and share with you policy recommendations on how to lift the growth in the economy and contain the vulnerabilities. And then I'll return again, with apologies in advance for my repetition, to the key messages. Now, in terms of key features, Pakistan's potential. As I mentioned, I, I think that Pakistan has a great potential. There's a lot to realize here. Um, it's a geostrategically important location where people like Ashley and Milan know much more than I do in terms of its importance in geostrategic terms. But in economic terms, it's um, in South Asia. It straddles part of Central Asia. It's close to fast-growing economies, including China and India, as well as the Gulf economies. Second, and therefore it can benefit a lot from an expansion of regional trade. Second, it has a young population. Half of the people in Pakistan are under 20 years old. That gives it the potential for a significant dividend from its young population if that, if that young population can find good and productive jobs and can increase their productivity. So that's my first key message. My second key message is that, unfortunately, Pakistan is uh, in a position where it is subject from time to time to negative shocks that are not economic, some of which will probably continue because they're natural. As you know, in the past few years, Pakistan has suffered from bad floods. It's also suffered from a terrible earthquake in 2005. Those are facts of life and, unfortunately, are likely to recur. That's something that needs to be managed. Um, similarly, it, suffer, it has suffered in its, in its existence from periods of political instability, again, a factor that needs to be managed. More recently, unfortunately, Pakistan has suffered from a bad security environment, and that's affect all, the, all these factors, the natural catastrophes, the political uncertainty, and security issues have affected confidence of people in the economy and their willingness and desire to invest. And so these, uh, these factors have impacted the economy. There are some other factors that are economic that also make the economy vulnerable to shocks. Uh, one reason is that Pakistan uh, has a relatively undiversified basket of trade. Let me try and say that in English now. Um, half of his exports are textiles. So the cotton price has a very important influence on the value of its exports. The cotton price goes up and down for factors beyond the, due to factors beyond the control of Pakistan. When it goes down, it hurts the external account. Current account goes into deficit. Reserves can be lost. Employment can be affected. Output can be affected. Similarly, on the import side, there's quite a heavy dependence on oil and petroleum products. About one-third of imports are oil. So if the oil price goes up, 
that's an added cost and burden to the economy. Also, Pakistan imports food from time to time. Uh, if it has a bad wheat harvest, then it becomes a wheat importer. It imports a lot of edible oil. Again, the prices of those products are out of the control of Pakistan. And when they go up, it hurts. Now, we've talked about potential shocks, economic and otherwise. Uh, how do, what sort of cushions or buffers does Pakistan have to insulate itself or to manage the impact of these shocks? Well, they're limited overall. One particular area is its budget, its fiscal picture. Um, one of the things, one of the features of its fiscal picture is Pakistan has a very low level of tax collection. It collects about 10% of GDP in taxes. That's one of the lowest in the world. Um, there's a general unwillingness to pay taxes, uh, which you can see because the level of collection is so low. Part of the reason behind that is a perceived inequity in the tax system. You know, there are only, there are less than 2 million people that pay taxes in Pakistan. The population is well in excess of 170 million. Certain sectors are exempt from paying taxes. Agriculture is one of the commonly cited ones. So there's no strong incentive to pay taxes if you feel that your neighbor or your brother is not paying. Also, if you feel that the level of service delivery is low, you know, what are you getting in return from these taxes? There's not much electricity. There's not much law and order that's supplied by the government. This also affects people will, people's willingness to pay taxes. In terms of the expenditure side, Pakistan has got a lot of things which it finds very hard um, to change. So, for example, interest payments are 40% of tax revenue. That's something that can't change unless you reduce your debt burden, which takes time to do. So you have no discretion over that. Subsidies represent 10% of expenditure. There you do have discretion, but for political economy reasons, the pattern has been that these remain high, even though these subsidies are not targeted towards the poor. They tend to benefit the middle and high income groups disproportionately. <coughs> Similarly, uh, because of regional developments and Pakistan's history, a large amount is spent on security. One can understand, given the history and developments in the region, that there is no desire in Pakistan to cut these expenditures, yet they account for one quarter of total expenditure. The bottom line is twofold of these large chunks of expenditures. One, it means that fiscal deficits tend to be high because tax revenue is low and expenditure is hard to reduce. Two, where you can reduce expenditure, it tend, the reductions tend to be on the things where you really would like the investment to make the economy more productive and to raise the productivity. So the cuts tend to fall on health spending, on education, and on infrastructure spending, just the things that are needed to make people and the country and its economy more productive. In addition to these factors, Public enterprises are, an, are a burden on the economy. Many of the large public enterprises, which are mainly in energy, transportation, and food, are loss-making. Those losses end up on the budget, uh, on the budget books, either directly in the budget or in terms of recognizing past losses through transfers of debt 
uh, from these public enterprises into the public debt. Third, a new thing, which in many ways is a good thing. There's been a lot of decentralization. The revenue-sharing arrangements between the federal government and the provincial governments have changed in the past uh, couple of years, giving a larger share of revenue to the provincial governments. Uh, last year, the re expenditure responsibilities of the provincial governments were increased. Um, these seem like reasonable moves, but the mechanism for this sharing has created issues. One is there is no binding mechanism to coordinate the fiscal positions or the budget deficits or surpluses of the provincial governments with the budget deficit or surplus of the federal government, which means it's very hard to know where you will end up with your overall budget deficit or surplus for the year. That's a key, it's a huge uncertainty and a, a, a bad source of uncertainty for managing the economy and for managing the fiscal position. Also, the new revenue sharing agreements makes it less interesting for provinces to raise their own revenues. Um, which is something that they should try to do so that the political costs of raising taxes are shared more equitably between the federal and the provincial governments. Another feature of the Pakistan economy, which has become more acute in recent years, but is something that's existed, I think, for two or three decades, is a constrained energy supply. This long-standing problem has been exacerbated by lack of investment, price distortions, and poor management of the sector. While many reform plans have been um, prepared, their implementation has not been sustained. As a result, there are widespread shortages. Last year, um, power outages averaged about eight hours a day in the summer. This lack of electricity is a huge constraint on growth and it's estimated that GDP was depressed by about 2% because of a lack of energy. Um, further, um, the loss-making by the energy sector is large and ends up as a burden on the budget in the shape of large subsidies. Last year, I think about 1.5% or 2% of GDP, about 2 or $3 billion, was spent on energy subsidies. As a result of the large, um, the large budget deficits, as well as other operations by the public sector that uh, are done by public enterprises, for example, inter-enterprise inter arrears in the energy sector, uh, interventions in the agricultural market, um, the amount of credit that has gone from the banking system to the private sector has slowed down. The public sector has taken large amounts of credit and, and so to, with the result that public credit from the banking system to the public sector now exceeds that to the private sector, which was not the case four years ago. The counterpart is that the rate of growth of credit to the private sector has been feeble in nominal terms and negative in real terms. There are a number of factors, notwithstanding the demand by the government for the credit, Banks have become more risk-averse, like banks, I think, all over the world since the crisis in 2008 and 2009. And it's partly because many banks have high levels of non-performing loans, uh, uh, and 
it's partly because demand for credit is not growing very quickly because business conditions are not very buoyant for the companies. They don't have great credit needs. But this is a problem, the lack of credit to the private sector, because more is needed so private sectors can invest. That investment's needed to create jobs and employment. So those are the features and some of the policies. And this leads me to the third message that I mentioned earlier, that inappropriate policies have resulted in weak or, or small buffers, and they've played a role in past economic outcomes. Uh, as well as the non-economic factors. And this is what I want to turn to next, past economic outcomes. First, I'd like to make a few regional comparisons. They show that Pakistan is losing ground relative to some of its neighbors. For example, per capita income 30 years ago was above those of most of its regional neighbors. Subsequently, it's fallen back and is now below that of India and Sri Lanka. And it's remained below uh, their income levels for the past decade. It's not just a one-year phenomenon. The same is the similar pattern can be seen for savings. Savings fluctuated. The level of savings to GDP has fluctuated in Pakistan, but it's stuck at a relatively low level. A contrast to some of its, its neighbors they have experienced an increase in their savings levels over the past decade. One sees a similar trend with investment. Although with investment there are cyclical fluctuations, investment has not increased durably in Pakistan. While in some, although not all, uh, regional countries, they have achieved higher levels of investment than in Pakistan. Then if one looks at growth over the past 30 years, it's not a good picture. Subpar growth has been the result. I mean, when I say subpar, compared to what is the potential in Pakistan and compared to what has been achieved in so many other emerging Asian economies, Pakistan's real GDP has been on a declining trend over the past 30 years, and it's been relatively volatile. While there have been some periods of growth spurts, for example, in 2004 to 2007, when growth averaged 7% an annum, these growth spurts have been relatively short-lived and not sustained. And more particularly, looking over the past four years, growth has only averaged 3% per annum, just a smidgen above population growth. Although, in fairness, it has been impacted by natural disasters in 2010 and 11. Now, the Pakistan government recognizes that growth is not going the way it would like and has developed a new growth strategy, and I think this should be welcomed. Um, and it has targeted a 7% growth rate because it knows that that is the level that's needed to absorb new entrance into the labor force given the size of the young population in Pakistan. It's, th this new growth strategy um, is addressing what it considers two main constraints to growth. One is inadequate market development. So to that end, and the sorry, inadequate market development, and the second is inefficient public sector management. So the new growth strategy um, 
proposes to increase competition, reduce policy distortions, and reduce barriers to entry and exit for firms and poor regulation. It also proposes to improve provision of core public goods, such as security, property, transactions, and contracts, and accumulation of human and physical capital. It wants to do this, rightly, I think, through partnerships and joint efforts between federal and provincial governments as well as the private sector. Um, this strategy seems is comprehensive and good. The issue will be to actually implement it, to build a consensus so that it can be implemented. Um, efforts have started in that direction. There was a seminar held in Islamabad um, in uh, November to discuss and try to start to build a consensus on how to move forward with a program to enhance growth in Pakistan. Employment is another outcome. Official unemployment is low in Pakistan, 6%. Many countries would wish to have such a low unemployment rate. Um, however, it masks two important things. One, 28% of the employed people are unpaid. They're often <coughs> And two, a lot of people who are employed are employed for less than 35 hours a week. So this means that although the official unemployment number is low, there's actually a lot of additional capacity uh, people available uh, to work more and to work in paid employment rather than unpaid employment. And that adds to the growth challenge because one not only needs to grow the economy uh, to employ new people entering the labor force, but also to provide better jobs for people that are already employed. Inflation is another outcome. Inflation performance was reasonably good up to 2008. However, in 2008, due to both higher commodity prices and accommodative domestic policies, inflation jumped to 25%. Since then, it has come down, but it has remained stubbornly in double-digit um, territory. And that's a big problem for restoring confidence in the economy and encouraging investment. It's also a problem for the poor, because inflation affects the poor the most. It's the cruelest tax on the poor, because the middle and high income groups have some ways of hedging the impact of inflation. They have some real estate or they have some foreign exchange. The poor just eat less because of inflation. Now, we've seen a weakening of the external position. I talked about low buffers earlier, and I mentioned the fiscal uh, position. Also, the external position has relatively low buffers because um, reserves have come down over the past year. Um, over the past year, exports have started, the growth in exports has started to decline, and the, and the current account position has weakened uh, as imports have increased, notwithstanding higher remittances which have continued to roll in. Capital inflows have started to dry up. And although the exchange rate has been become more flexible over the past six or eight months, uh, reserves have been lost, and reserves are now at about three months of imports, which is adequate. But if this trends continue in the external account, there is a risk that reserves could be um, 
could decline further, which would reduce even this relatively small buffer. So, to conclude on economic outcomes, growth has been subpar. Um, there have been some good periods, but these good periods have been relatively short and not sustained. Savings and investment are low. Uh, inflation has been re relatively high since 2008. There is considerable underemployment and unpaid employment, and the external position is weakening. Now, having said in context the issues facing the, econo the Pakistani economy and the um, outcomes, I'd like to talk a bit about the outlook for Pakistan and its economy. First of all, the short-term outlook, where the key message is for both the short and medium-term outlook is that risks and vulnerabilities have grown so that the world has become a more difficult place for the Pakistani economy, which is basically a way of saying that something needs to be done to policies to make sure that these risks are managed and the vulnerabilities are contained and growth is lifted. Um, now, I'm going to talk a little bit in Pakistani financial years. Many of you know what they are, but just for those that aren't familiar, the financial year starts in July 1 and ends on June 30th, and we're currently in 2011-12. And the outlook for the rest of this financial year is difficult. The economy is recovering from floods, and real GDP growth is projected to increase, but only to about 3.5% in real terms. Average inflation is, is projected to remain in double digits for the year. As I mentioned, on the external side, the balance of payments is under pressure, and the current account is projected to return to a deficit. Um, there's continued difficulties in, in attracting external financing, and IMF repayments are starting to be made in this financial year. On the fiscal, which will tend to put pressure on the reserves of the central bank. On the fiscal side, the budget deficit target is 4.7% of GDP. That will be very hard to achieve unless new policies are implemented, for which there's less than four months left in this financial year. Um, and absent some corrective measures on the fiscal, it would not, the deficit would likely rise considerably above the government's target and may get as high as around 7% of GDP. Turning to the medium-term outlook, under current policies or a baseline scenario, prospects are not bright over the medium term. With sustained elevated deficits, credit to the private sector would continue to be crowded out, resulting in a de continued decline in private investment. Also, private savings would decline. Uh, as a result, there wouldn't be sufficient investment or growth in the economy. In fact, growth will probably settle around 3.5% per year, which is half of the level needed to absorb the new entrants into the labor market each year. So unemployment would rise. Similarly, per capita income in this scenario would, would rise only very modestly. Inflation would remain elevated, as would public debt. Reflecting a widening current account and repayments to the IMF the international reserves cushion would become very low. 
In other words, in the absence of any major adjustment, Pakistan would face sizable financing gaps and a low level of international reserves. Well, that's pretty grim to start with. And then when you consider what are the risks, they're all tilted to the downside. As I've mentioned, the policy buffers are very limited, so any additional shocks that come uh, will be hard to absorb without, po without policy adjustment. Uh, security problems and, and political uncertainty cloud prospects as well, particularly as regarding politics, we're in an election year. Growth, fiscal gross financing requirements are projected to be very large this year, at 30% of GDP which creates a high rollover risk for domestic debt. There are also risks for inflation, uh, especially from possible supply shocks, passed through from exchange rate depreciation, the impact of financing the large budget deficit, and continued accommodative monetary policy. On the external side, inward real sector spillovers are a risk. While financial contagion risks from Europe are very limited because the links, financial links with Europe are limited. There are trade links. And if exports to Europe decline by 20%, that could result in a 10% reduction in, in Pakistan's international reserves over the course of a year. Also, if the problems in Europe or in the world's economy resulted in um, a downturn in the oil price, that could affect Middle Eastern economies from where 60% of remittances come. If that were to happen, that would impact negatively remittances. Also, there are financial stability risks. Uh, the banking sector uh, is reasonably well capitalized um, and relatively liquid due to large holdings of government securities, as well as relatively profitable. However, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, um, Non-performing loans are an issue for some banks, and the level in the system as a whole has been rising over the past several years. Um, so that uh, if that trend were to continue, that may create some strain in the banking system. Now, what to do is the next question. Basically, policies... Need to, need to be adjusted to both contain the risks in the near term and move the economy onto a higher medium-term growth path. And that is my fifth message. It's really watch the vulnerabilities, manage them carefully, and then start moving vigorously to lift growth. Because if you start today, it takes a little while for that to actually feed through into the economy. Um, and we prepared an alternative scenario based on these policies. I'll describe the policies first and then move to the impact on uh, growth, public finances, and external position. The, these, this scenario assumes that more prudent fiscal and monetary policies, as well as structural reforms for taxes, energy, improving the business climate, uh, um, to pave the way for higher productivity in the economy. Um, these policies would pave the way for higher growth, lower unemployment, lower inflation, and a more robust reserve cover, which means that Pakistan would have more cushions 
in the, in the event it were hit by uh, shocks, be they from outside the country or due to other factors. Now, looking at fiscal policy, as a, the deficit has risen uh, in the past few years, not only has it risen, but more and more it's dependent on bank credit for its financing. So as a result, as I mentioned earlier, the use of bank credit by the public sector has resulted in much lower availability of bank credit for the private sector. In the near term, uh, the fiscal deficit needs to be contained. I mentioned earlier that without measures it could go up to 7%. There are some things that can be done on the revenue side and on the expenditure side to contain the level, to stop it getting so high. One can move ahead with some temporary revenue measures. One can also clamp down on uh, non-wage current spending, trying to contain some of the subsidies that are poorly targeted to rein in the budget deficit. This is a stopgap type of these are stopgap types of measures, but they will reduce the vulnerabilities and risks in the near term, and buy some breathing space uh, during which you can start to implement more durable medium-term measures to improve the structure not only of public finances but also other areas. In the medium term, on public finances, revenue needs to be mobilised. The way that revenue has been durably increased in many countries around the world is through the implementation of a broad-based consumption tax. Pakistan does have a consumption tax. It is not broad-based. It is full of exemptions. Uh, it is also has a re refund mechanism that doesn't work very smoothly. That needs to be reformed carefully and durably because that's the way to increase revenue. It could also be complemented by reform of other taxes, for example, a broader-based income tax regime. A lot of incomes are exempt from taxation, not just agriculture, but certain types of capital income, certain types of rental income exempted. That could be broadened usefully. It would not only make tax fairer, it would also raise revenue and provide money to both reduce the deficit and to pay for investment in education, health, and infrastructure. On the, um, on the spending side, there are a number of measures that would improve the composition of spending, reducing losses in public enterprise, restructuring those public enterprises, possibly including a privatization component. That would help not only the budget, but it would also reduce the footprint of the government in the economy. Um, Similarly, some of the quasi-fiscal operations that the government engages in to support certain commodity prices should be trimmed back to let markets operate and to reduce uh, the costs to the budget. Um, they also would reduce the diversion of bank credit to the public sector uh, and free up credit availability to the private sector. Um, Cash and debt management need to be improved. The debt management needs to improve to maturity, to extend gradually the maturities of public sector debt and therefore reduce rollover and interest rate risks. Also, cash management should be improved. There are too many deposits of the government in the banking system. 
that earn very low rates of interest, while the government borrows at high rates of interest. That's a clear inefficiency that should be attacked. Also, the fiscal decentralization um, framework needs to be strengthened. As I mentioned earlier, there needs to be a transparent and binding mechanism to coordinate the fiscal positions of the provincial and federal governments. Also, the incentives for provincial governments to raise revenue need to be increased so that they have a stake in raising revenue in what is a revenue-starved economy. Now, turning to financial policies, monetary and exchange policy first. In the past few years, monetary policy has accommodated fiscal deficits. Um, the central bank has had an expansionary stance in the past few months. Although reserve money growth has moderated, this mostly reflects a loss of international reserves, which has fallen because the central bank has intervened to support the exchange rate without sterilizing that intervention. Um, given the inflation risks, given the risks to the external position, a more cautious monetary policy is needed. Um, and also a more flexible exchange rate is needed. Um, while there has been some increase in exchange rate flexibility, which I mentioned earlier, over the past six or eight months, I think that needs to be a little more aggressive so that in periods when there are pressures to appreciate, then uh, the central bank should be intervening to accumulate reserves. But on the other side, it should do the opposite. When there are depreciation pressures, it should let the rate take the strain rather than the reserves. Um, Further, the, the autonomy of the central bank needs to be improved. The current legislative framework is weak. It doesn't provide needed autonomy to the central bank. The central bank cannot control the amount it lends to the bank. It um, does not have a very robust, independent decision-making network, uh, sorry, decision-making process on interest rates. There are too many people with vested interests that are on its board that have a say in the decision-making process on how to set interest rates. It would be better if they were independent and unattached to any vested interests, like most central banks have an independent board of economists to set interest rates, including the Federal Reserve. In terms of the financial sector, um, there, it's important to save guard financial sector stability. For that, work needs to be done to address um, non-performing loans. Although capital adequacy is, is, is reasonably strong, um, the rising non-performing loans are something that needs to be monitored and addressed. Also, the concentration in banks' portfolios of holding government treasury bills needs to be monitored carefully. Um, Concentration in any portfolio is a dangerous thing. Um, there's a need also for bank supervision to be strengthened by reducing um, any and eliminating regulatory forbearance, um, improving financial governance for those banks where it is weak, um, and also to build confidence in the banking system, deposit insurance could be introduced. To help resolve these non-performing loans, commercial courts would speed up recovery 
of bad debts because one of the problems with the non-performing loans is that the legal system in Pakistan, like in many countries, works very slowly, and that affects the loan recovery process. Moreover, there's a lack of competition in the financial sector. Developing capital markets would help inject more competition into the financial sector, which would reduce the spreads, because some of the, um, the interest rates offered on deposits or are pretty low because in many areas there are very few banks that offer to take uh, deposits. So more competitions needed between banks as well as from non-bank institutions within the financial sector. Now I'd like to turn, we've talked about fiscal policy, we've talked about financial sector policies, now I'd like to turn to structural reforms. And if you look at surveys of Pakistan's competitiveness, one can see that there are problems. Um, if you look at the World Economic Forum survey, the World Bank surveys, you can see that Pakistan is not doing well. In the World Economic Forum, it's ranked um, 118 out of 142 countries. In the Doing Business Report, it's ranked 83rd out of 183 countries, relatively a bit higher. What are the problems that these, that these surveys identify? Well, macroeconomic policies. I've talked a lot about that already. They also talk about uh, labor market efficiency. They talk about poor infrastructure. They talk about weak human capital. Uh, they talk about governance in the way that people are paying taxes, in the way that contracts are enforced, and the way that you can register property or the difficulties you face. And that points to the general issue of transparency and accountability. These are not new issues in Pakistan, but they've been around for a long time. There are well-known reasons for them, but they're important because they act as a significant drag on the performance of the economy and on its ability to grow and create jobs. So what to do? Well, there's quite a lot to be done. Um, first of all, I think there's, as I mentioned earlier, you need to, Pakistan needs to get people together and create and actually build and create a consensus on what needs to be done. Because there have been, in the last two or three decades, many wonderful reform programs that have been designed. They've not been implemented. They've not been implemented because there's a lack of consensus. So the real challenge, I think, is to develop a consensus. Um, and then that requires broad-based uh, campaigns by the government and by civil society institutions to talk to people to identify what needs to be done and how it should be done. How should the burden be shared and spread? Um, so one key area of getting growth going is to reform the energy sector. As I've mentioned, it's a huge constraint on growth. Um, another area which is linked to it is reforming and restructuring where needed large public enterprises. Um, there's also a need to improve the investment cli um, climate by promoting better regulation and better governance and facilitating entry and exit of firms. Civil service reform is needed. If you go to Pakistan, which I'm sure many of you have, there are some excellent civil servants. 
but it's a terribly thin crust. So one wants to take measures to improve the professionalism and the remuneration to build a stronger, not necessarily a larger, but a stronger, better qualified, more competent civil service. Um, the financial sector, its functioning needs to be improved. I just discussed the issues of lack of competition, of wide banking spreads, of potential weaknesses from uh, non-performing loans. Also, the social safety net. There has been some strengthening done over the past few years. It needs for further strengthening to really address some of the issues in the economy could produce impacts that hurt the poor. And so one wants to make sure that they are protected, both out of decency, but also to maintain a consensus on moving forward with, with, re, with reform. If you don't have a social safety net, people rightly will scream, and that will unravel your reform efforts. Last and very important is trade liberalization. There's huge potential um, for trade liberalization particularly within the region, the benefits from that, from that liberalization would be immense. So those are the types of measures that would be recommended and underpin the alternative scenario um, which we prepared at the time of the Article 4 consultation. This alternative scenario assumes much less bank financing of the fiscal deficit and less crowding out of the private sector. Uh, these policies and reforms would produce higher growth, lower unemployment and inflation, and a more robust reserve cover. And you could see that public finances will get stronger. Um, the deficit would, over time, decline to 3% of GDP. The debt-to-GDP ratio would also decline to 45%, which would mean that less interest would need to be paid. It would free up space for spending on other higher-priority areas. Also, lower deficits would result in more credit being available to the private sector, which would allow them to invest and create jobs and more growth in the economy. Also, better policies would increase confidence in the economy, which would mean that there would be more investment, both from domestic sources and from foreign sources. It would also result in a higher amount of reserves, which would build cushions so that when there are shocks, you've got a, a, a bigger reserve buffer. So I will now conclude. Thank you for your patience. But I'd like to just repeat my key messages. We think Pakistan has abundant potential. Its past performance has been affected by non-economic factors, including security, politics, and natural catastrophes. But it's also been affected by poor economic policies. Now, the risks and vulnerabilities are growing, both due to domestic factors and due to a more hostile global economic environment. So now's the time to move ahead and take measures, if you can in this pre-election environment, to take measures both to contain vulnerabilities and to move the, the economy onto a high-growth path to create the jobs you need and durably attack and reduce poverty. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.
Thank you, Paul, for that very sobering assessment of where Pakistan is today. Let me yield the floor to Milan, and if you could spend a few minutes reflecting on what we've heard. Uh, can you hear me okay? Is that all right? Uh, thank you for Ashley for inviting me. I have to admit when, when Ashley invited me to discuss this report, I had to confess that I'm neither an economist nor an expert on Pakistan, um, which in Washington, I guess, makes me uniquely qualified to <laughs> discuss this report. Um, I want to thank Paul for his presentation. Um, you know, I think because of the volume of reportage that comes out from the World Bank and the IMF, we sometimes don't stop to really commend the, the staff and the people who put together these reports, which in this case is really, I think, the best primer out there on the state of the Pakistani economy. So thank you to Paul and, and colleagues who are here. Uh, in my short time, you know, I can't really contribute much to what you've already said about the state of the Pakistani economy. I want to focus on the role of outsiders and what outsiders can do. I want to focus on, on three things in particular. One, uh, the United States. Uh, two, the future of Pakistani relations with the International Monetary Fund. Um, and what generally outsiders, other donors can do right now, given this quite sobering analysis. So let me start with the first point on the United States. So we're here in, in Washington. It would seem odd that we don't discuss what the role of the United States is in, in, in the future uh, economic outlook of, of Pakistan. So the perspectives of Pakistanis on the importance of U.S. assistance is, is somewhat schizophrenic. So as all of you know, the U.S. provides billions of dollars, both in civilian assistance as well as coalition support funds, security assistance, and so on. Now, when it's appropriation season, Pakistanis argue that the money is vital. You know, how can you punish the civilian government when you've always given uh, unlimited funds to, to, to prior military governments? Then after six months or so, as, as the delays drag on and, and, the, and the commitments aren't made and the disbursements and the benchmarks aren't made, they start to dismiss the importance of U.S. assistance. Maybe we should just send it back. It's not worth the hassle. It's not that much anyway. You know, total overseas development assistance is only about 1.7% or so of, of Pakistani GNI. Compared to 47% of Afghanistan's GNI, you know, it's a relatively small number. So the question I would have uh, for Paul in, in this analysis is, we talked a lot about shocks. One shock you didn't talk about is an aid shock. So imagine we were to all go home and wake up tomorrow and turn on CNN and find out that, you know, Mullah Omar was, was found near a Pakistani military cantonment, <laughs> right? Unlikely, but it could happen. So what impact, if U.S. aid was withdrawn, would that have on the bottom line for the Pakistani economy, on the fiscal deficit? The statement of the Pakistani executive director to the bank and the fund, which is in the appendix, is clearly counting on significant flows, especially of coalition support funds, to shore up the fiscal situation. Have you thought about the scenario? Are the Pakistanis, more importantly, thinking about what this would mean for the budget and for the deficit? The second point I want to make is, or a question really, is on relations between Pakistan and the IMF. Now, Pakistan has extensively relied on, Pakistan, on IMF resources for a long time. In fact, in the early 2000s, there was a report put out by the IMF on the prolonged use of fund resources. Uh, and Pakistan was a case study in that report because they've re relied so intensively on, on IMF assistance over several decades. Now, 
as as all of you, I'm sure, know, last year the government of Pakistan walked away from their existing IMF arrangement, right? So they effectively have left about $3 billion on the table, which they decided not to tap. And as I understand it, there were two major stumbling blocks, and you discussed some of these uh, in your presentation. One was taxes, right? Either the unwillingness or the inability of the Pakistani government to make a big push on raising revenue, including on a value-added tax and, and other things. And the second is on energy. So while it's true that the government has, has raised tariffs, it's not really nearly enough to address the fundamental problem that you know, less than 10% of consumers pay for electricity at cost recovery level, that there are these huge circular debt issues, right? So the buyers of electricity don't pay the distributors, who don't pay the producers, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the World Bank estimates that energy subsidies alone drive a huge hole in the government budget to the tune of about 1.2% of GDP. All right, so these are intense challenges, and the government, for whatever reason, wasn't able to, to, to meet them. So the question is, what is the position of the IMF, or what should be the position of the IMF, if there is a future crisis, a balance of payments crisis, for instance, and ask the IMF for help? Will the IMF be willing to re-engage with Pakistan on a lending program? Will it make taxes, tax reform and energy reform prior actions, so basically insist on certain reforms being implemented before re-engaging uh, in a financial relationship? What are the IMF red lines here? Uh, will the political pressure be just insurmountable, which, in, in, if history is any guide, uh, has often proved to be the case. The third point I want to make is, given this very grim, uh, sobering analysis, you know, what can outsiders do at the present time? So I think Paul makes an excellent point, and I think it's one that should be reemphasized about the Pakistani political business cycle and where we are in that business cycle. So at this point, with elections coming at the end of the year, perhaps, it's really difficult for the government to commit to any of these policies that aren't really populist measures, right? I mean, that's just – that's a basic reality. Very few people are going to want to stick their neck out in advance of elections and take on some of these politically very difficult reforms. So we have to be aware, of course, of the mindset of policymakers who are sitting in Islamabad at, at this moment. So the question is, you know, post-election, we don't know what will come. Will there be any space or genuine appetite for reform? And assuming there is, what should our posture be, uh, the bank, the fund, the international donor community? So if you take the case of energy, for instance – if $3 billion of unused IMF funds wasn't enough incentive, right, wasn't enough to incentivize reform, what can any external actor do in that sector? So when you talk with colleagues at USAID or at the State Department, they say, look, the Pakistanis have told us what their top three priorities are and their energy, energy, and energy. Uh, and so the U.S. government has gone about, I think, uh, and other donors have, including the ADB, working on uh, on energy projects and really attacking kind of low-hanging fruit and maybe making some long-term investments. Uh, but is there anything in the short to medium term that could be done uh, that would help us get past some of the problems that, that donors have experienced in the past? 
Finally, let me end on market access, um, which is an old cliche the Pakistanis have been asking for a long time for, uh, for better trade relationships. Uh, in addition to aid, that there's been a real emphasis on trade. And to end on a kind of happy note, it does seem that things are trending in the right direction. Um, so Paul mentioned that the, the Indians and the Pakistanis are moving towards uh, better trade footing, including by, by making India, uh, giving them a most favored nation trading status and so on. Uh, I, I just point out that the, the European Union has finally agreed uh, on uh, unilateral trade preferences for, for about 75 Pakistani goods, which they were only able to do by getting a waiver from the WTO, which means getting India on board, which is, which is a big sign. The U.S., of course, we all know, has not acted on this front. Um, and so I think the question is, or the, the, the point to make here is the, the Indo-Pakistani trade relationship seems to be the one that the donors uh, should be focused on. And as things move forward, they really need to be primed, I think, to support regional trade and integration. I'm not sure that in the short term there's a lot they can do getting in between the Indians and the Pakistanis who'd probably prefer to handle things at this stage themselves. Um, but is there a role in the future for, for other bilateral and other donors to come in? So those are the sort of the three categories, U.S. assistance, future relations with the fund, and, and what can really be done now in the short term, particularly on difficult sectors such as energy. Thanks. Thanks, Milan. Since I am moderating this meeting, I'm going to abuse my privilege of asking Paul the first question before I invite comment from the floor. I think you focused very rightly on the problem of policy change. That if you can somehow create an environment where Pakistan begins to move in the direction of the policy changes that you identify, uh, many of the latent potentialities can be realized, and actually quite quickly in some cases. And you also flagged that the immediate task would be creating a political consensus around those policy changes. Now, it seems to me that there are two reasons why the <coughs> consensus has, in a sense, eluded us so far. One may be the prevalence of information deficits, where people don't appreciate what the consequences of certain policy choices are and if that is the case, then an education or re-education program uh, would be helpful. But there may be another cause which is far more problematic, which is it's not an information deficit as it is an effort to shift costs of policy change uh, on the part uh, from one constituency to another. And because if, if the elusive consensus uh, is because of pervasive cost shifting in the political system and in the economic system, then that may account for why you don't get this robust consensus behind moving towards certain policies. Now, how does one, if this is the problem, how does one fix the problem of cost shifting, particularly in what is at least partly a democratic process, where there are incentives to have others pay the cost, and if you are in office, to have people who don't vote for you pay the cost. How does one square that circle? So if 
uh, I'll, I'll leave that uh, with you as a question, but let me open the floor and just identify yourself and I'll recognize you, Tazi. Thank you, Tazi Schaefer from Brookings and Old Pakistan Hand. I've been following the Pakistan economy off and on for the past 40 years. I'd like to underscore the importance of what Milan said about the political dimension of this. Uh, when Musharraf came in, he tried to get traders to and, and merchants to register for income tax, and they basically closed the country down for three days. Uh, this uh, leaving the $3 billion on the table last summer wasn't the first time that the IMF program has fallen apart, as I'm sure you are only too painfully aware. Um, I guess the question that I would have for you is, given these circumstances where the Pakistan government just won't or can't do what it considers to be political suicide, where you have a weak government that is always looking over its shoulder at the army and at both its dear colleagues in the parliament and its opponents. Um, and that in the back of its mind believes that ultimately somebody is going to bail it out. If not the US, the IMF, etc., then there's always the possibility of free oil from Abu Dhabi or Saudi Arabia. Who are your allies within Pakistan in trying to get this kind of a reform program through? How does one identify and mobilize them and overcome the problem of a seriously weak government? We'll take one more question, and then I'll uh, give Paul a chance, and then we'll come back to another round coming. Uh, my name is Kami Bert. I'm with the Pakistan Inspector, and my question is about uh, designing any kind of system that could uh, prevent uh, Punjabi mafia thieves who are literally stealing money from that country and having big bank account in Switzerland, in US, uh, in Dubai, uh, at Straw. And uh, just a few months ago, Musharraf, you can, uh, he was selling basically snake oil here, and they didn't allow me to ask him a question. He had eight foreign exchange uh, account in abroad, about billion of dollars. Now you can imagine his salary is not more than was not more than a couple of thousand of dollars. Where did he make that money? Of course, he made that money. He made fool of Bush, who pumped sixty billion dollar in Pakistani economy in terms of some net cash flow, in terms of rescheduling foreign debt, and in terms of forgiving some foreign debt. Those sixty billion dollar they went into Pakistani economy, and they left when Musharraf left. So this is the role of those Pakistani thieves. And those thieves are supported by Washington, D.C. Now, if you Google... Get to the question. Okay, please. My question is, if you Google Mr. 10%, who do you think you would find? Zardari. Pakistani current ambassador, she got this, earned this position by getting touched in public by Pakistani prime minister. So this is the quality of those people that we force upon on poor Pakistanis. So my question is, is there any system that could be devised to control these thieves from looting those Pakistani, poor Pakistanis, uh, you know, hard work, hard, hard earned money? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much for the questions. Hmm. Tricky ones. Um, 
Let me, if I may, start with Milan's questions. Um, you're right. Um, if aid doesn't come, it creates shocks, particularly to the budget. Although a lot of the aid doesn't go to the budget, but there is some that does, and it's large enough to make a difference. Uh, it could swing the budget deficit by up to 1% of GDP. And this is part of the bigger um, budget conundrum, that there are all sorts of uncertainties and potential vulnerabilities, and this is one of them. And this is why you need more cushions and you need contingency measures. Uh, to adjust that. Because if, say, you don't get the billion that you've been expecting, say, from the US or from another donor, then you need to adjust for that in your budget. Um, the government's aware of these risks. Uh, it tends to be fairly optimistic about what it's going to receive, but it also knows that there is risk, and they do have plans on how to offset um, these shortfalls, whether the offsetting mechanisms are really robust and would fully offset it is a question. And if it doesn't, it means a bigger deficit, it means more inflation, it means m more crowding out. So those are the risks that go with it. And turning to Pakistan and the IMF, my favorite. <laughs> um, look, we remain closely engaged in our discussions uh, with uh, Pakistan, the government. Um, obviously, it's a difficult time in a pre-election cycle, as you've said. But we are actively engaged in what something we call post-program monitoring. For countries that borrow relatively large amounts of money from the IMF, then there's a policy where we have regular consultations and reports to our board uh, that's called post-program monitoring, which we have... Uh, which we will do. The, it, will, it started the period, and there will be a report prepared in the summer on this, probably July or August. So we'll remain engaged. And then your question is, well, you know, what will happen if, IMF's, if uh, Pakistan says, look, we'd like some more money from the IMF? Well, look, our compulsion, as they would say in Pakistan, is we're a cooperative institution. So our predisposition would be to say yes, but like with every other country in the world that makes such a request, the difficulty always, what are the terms and conditions, or what are the conditionalities? Which you were talking about, what are the red lines? What would be required? And that's very hard to say until you get a firm request in your hand, which we don't have. I mean, the government has said that it does not wish to have a program at the moment, which is its decision. And in terms of what would be needed, what would be the red lines, we'd have to look at that and the circumstances in which the country's requesting a program. Um, now, um, turning to Ashley, your question, it's very difficult, this question. This is a little bit outside my realm because it's more political economy than uh, straight economics. I think that you do see a pattern where certain groups have managed to do reasonably well um, in the economy, like in every every country, there are vested interest groups that do well, and they tend to be better organized than those that bear the costs of the advantages that these vested interest groups are getting. I think the way to go about it is a long-term process. Uh, and here, I'm not thinking 
these issues, I think, are fairly well known in Pakistan, at least academia and people in government. I think everybody knows what's up. And there have been very good studies done, both by Pakistanis and by foreigners, of many of these issues. People know what the costs are. They know where the burden falls. The fact is that there hasn't been a consensus. There has been this transferring, as you say, to change things. And I think that the way forward to tr is it needs more discussion, more transparency. And I think that the role that organizations could play both within Pakistan and external organizations, but I think the lead should come from within because uh, foreign organizations are always viewed with some suspicion that they have their own agendas. But it's more discussion, more transparency, more accountability. And I don't have anything more substantive than those relatively general and banal recommendations. Um, now, Madam, who are the allies to mobilize reform? Well, this is the same, I think, a similar issue as, as Ashley's raised, that they're not very good at mobilizing themselves. They are basically, they're the poor people who don't have much of a voice, um, maybe because they don't have very good information or they don't understand because they haven't had access to good education. Um, but if you talk to the academics, they understand the issues, they know what is recommended, but society and its reflection, which is the political system, doesn't yet support any radical change. And as you noted rightly, these are not new issues. Uh, so I think at some point there will be an awareness and a realization. I don't know when, and I don't know what the trigger would be. Um, now, regarding the looting, this is something that is it's really beyond the scope of my institution to deal with. I mean, I think in other countries, you know, where there are accusations or allegations um, that of bad governance, as we call it in our euphemistic language, um, it's normally the domestic constituencies that eventually stand up and hold these people to account. Um, it seems to me that, you know, someone like Jack Abramoff in the U.S. eventually was called to account. And you need things like that to serve as examples to people. Uh, Spar Agnew, too. Uh, until you get into that sort of system, it's hard to know, hard for people to feel that there are checks and balances in the system. Sorry to be so vague, but it's really beyond my scope as an economist. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. Um, my name is Lisa Friedman. I write for Climate Wire. We're an energy policy magazine. And so I wanted to, to turn to one of the issues that Milan raised that, that um, you didn't get to. And, I, you know, I have to admit I write very little about Pakistan. And so some of the statistics that you cited, the, you know, eight hours a day in the summer of blackouts and two to three billion in, in subsidies were really astounding to me. Um, I was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about you know, what Pakistan's energy needs are, where, where some of the biggest challenges are, um, thoughts on how to untangle the, the mess that the two of you started to, to really get into and explain. Also, I'm looking at this, you know, the, the UN has a big project now and a big 
slogan, you know, energy access for all by 2030. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, in a country like Pakistan, how do those big ideals and big plans match up with what sounds like a very complicated situation on the ground? Thanks. Yes. Good evening. My name is Ankit Gupta. Uh, my question is to Mr. Paul. Uh, so, uh, you addressed structural policy reforms. How important are policy reforms in terms of foreign policies with neighboring countries such as India and China? I mean, uh, how important are those bilateral relations for the economic growth of a country, Because, uh, which has been plagued due to years of mistrust? So uh, how important are those uh, polit policy reforms which are for in terms of bilateral relations? Could you just shed some light on that? Do you want to take those two points? Yeah, with pleasure. Um, Thank you. Uh, look. Sorry. Uh, on energy, I, I'm sorry, I have to give a disclaimer. I'm not an expert on energy. I mean, let me explain. The World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and some of the bilateral donors, including USAID, which Milan mentioned, they have energy experts. We don't. We look at the impact on the budget and the impact on growth. So with that huge disclaimer, let me try and fumble a bit with some of the issues you raised. Um, there is a large deficit, as I mentioned, um, and I think it's due to lack of investment, as I mentioned. And I think one of the big issues is management. Um, there are too many losses in the system. Some are technical. You know, there are holes in power stations and energy is just going up into the atmosphere. Gas pipelines leak, things like that. Um, some are just bad management. There's no maintenance going on. And collection of bills. People aren't being billed or people are not or not paying their bills, or they pay the collector rather than paying the company. Um, I think there is massive scope uh, to reduce those losses. I don't think that would rectify the whole thing, but that would have a huge impact because there are very large losses, which in my limited understanding are much higher than what we would expect for a country like Pakistan. Um, in terms of regional spin-offs, it's been a long time since there's been free trade in the region. But I think that at the time of partition, about 70% of uh, Pakistan's trade was with India. Um, now, it wouldn't go immediately to that high, but the trade that exists is very small, and some of it is diverted through the Middle East and so forth. You can easily see the savings in transactions costs and the fact that there are still many commonalities between the two neighbors that make each one a natural market to the other, so there are great scale potential there. So I, I would think there are very, very large benefits for higher growth in both countries. And I think that as Pakistan is smaller than India economically, it would benefit in relative terms more. The dividends are really huge, but I don't want to count those chickens because we've seen initiatives over the years often be frozen because of political events. But the, I think there's a very, very large potential there. I'll just draw your attention uh, on the energy side to uh, the Pakistan Planning Commission website which actually has a very nice document about Pakistan's medium-term needs. 
and one of the chapters in that deals with energy uh, and what it comes down to. I mean, there are series of demand side problems that Paul flagged, but on the supply side, it goes to the issue that you also raised in your presentation that narrow ta a narrow tax base leading up to relatively constrained government revenues has essentially prevented the country from making the capital investments in energy generation. So the kind of energy base that Pakistan had at a time when it had a much smaller population has remained relatively comparable, even though population has grown and demands on energy have grown. And the Planning Commission paper actually does a very good job of outlining that, so you might want to take a look at it. Sure. Yes, ma'am. My name is Mala Mahmoud. I'm from Pakistan, actually, but I've been studying in the United States for the past four years. And I have a pretty narrow question, and I think it does link to the economics of it all. But um, how do you feel brain drain in, um, from Pakistan, or back to Pakistan, um, has affected the economy? Um, and have you taken that into account in your charts? And the second part of my question is, um, have do you feel like the law and order situation in Pakistan is also linked to um, almost this idea that law is not something to be trusted anymore because on the district levels, courts, etc., are not doing the jobs that they're supposed to do. Thank you. Did you? No. Oh, sorry. My name is Taki Uchi. I'm a Japanese journalist and a scholar of Johns Hopkins University. Um, I like to I think I, I should ask uh, uh, Mr. Tellis um, this question. It's be because it's very political and it's related to nuclear and uh, uh, non-proliferation issues. So um, we are talking about, about already, you know, energy of Pakistan. But um, um, res very recently, it is reported that uh, Pakistan is uh, uh, they they import. Uh, six nuclear reactors, you know, additionally, into the uh, Karachi and uh, or, uh, maybe Kshab um, from China. And so, uh, until last year, uh, it was already reported, but you know, it, it was two reactors. But uh, this year, uh, six another, six other uh, reactors importing. Um, but um, uh, my question is that um, so. Uh, uh, Apparently, the uh, United, United States government has been uh, very moderate you know, uh, to this uh, uh, movement. It, uh, uh, I myself you know, think that the uh, U.S. government pressurized more about this one. You know. um, it is said that uh, it is grandfathered, uh, you know, uh, NSG rule, uh, I mean, uh, China. China entered 2004, you know, in NSG, and so uh, that is uh, this this trade uh, with you know, between Pakistan, China, as uh, uh, before that, so that um, it is grandfathered. But, but uh, uh, my question is that: uh, Don't you think you know, uh, U.S. government will criticize it more and uh, pressure pressurize to? To regulate such a thing, and one another question is about related this. Um, some opinions are uh, noticed you know, to uh, uh, include Pakistan as a NSG's partner, like India, you know, 
uh, U.S. did with uh, India. So then uh, these two, two questions I, I like to ask. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, thank you. Um, relating to the brain drain, um, don't have any comprehensive statistics of that, only my casual empiricism of meeting parents in Islamabad with so many middle-class families with their children living abroad, uh, studying abroad, and often encouraged to stay abroad and work. So I think the point you've raised is a factor. But in contrast... And another thing is that when I've talked about unemployment, it's really quite incredible the way that um, Pakistanis have been so ingenious in finding opportunities abroad uh, at all skill levels because you've found that, say, you know, even in Dubai, when they were having their financial troubles, remittances kept rolling in from Dubai to Pakistan, and some of the expatriate Pakistanis even went off and found jobs in other countries because conditions were... Uh, not very good in Dubai. So that's, again, a resilience factor. Um, I, but that said, I think that there's a huge amount of talented people in Pakistan, but I don't have a comprehensive sense of you know, how the stock of human capital and the educational credentials of Pakistanis have been affected by this brain drain that you mentioned. Um, the law and order issue is a problem. I think that if this is one of the reasons that people are not very keen on paying taxes. They don't feel that they're getting good services, or some feel that they're getting no services. I also think it has non-economic impact. I think that's allowed some of the insurgent groups to gain ground because there's a lack of law and order. Um, I think those are the comments on the nuclear power. I'm not very well placed, so. I'll take a quick crack at that. It's a very complicated question, as you understand, international regimes. And, but uh, the U.S. position on nuclear assistance to Pakistan has two parts. One is the legal question about whether these reactor sales are legitimate under NSG rules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that's a complicated story. I'll keep that aside. But there is a more practical issue, and that is the U.S. government has not been enthusiastic about international nuclear cooperation with Pakistan because, for several reasons, the capital costs of nuclear plants are extremely high relative to other alternatives. Two, the gestation period for nuclear power plants to come online is extremely long, and in third world countries it's longer than anywhere else in the world. And so the U.S. government feels that it's not a solution that resolves Pakistan's immediate energy problems, that there is an energy crisis, which, as Paul points out, is extremely serious and which requires, for want of a better word, quick fixes. And if quick fixes are the way to go, then nuclear is probably not the best solution, precisely because of cost and because of gestation time especially when there are alternatives which require more effective tapping of Pakistan's own resources, and hydroelectric resources come to mind. So there is a whole set of political issues which are complicated in their own right, but even if those political issues didn't exist, there would be a strong case to be made that Pakistan ought to rethink its, ex its investment in nuclear power 
as a solution to its immediate energy problems uh, for all the reasons that I flagged. And those are, of course, decisions that Pakistanis have to make. It's not a decision that the U.S. can make. One more question. Two more. Okay, we'll take those two and then we will uh, draw the curtain. Uh, David Orden from the International Food Policy Research Institute. Can I just pick on your um, accumulated knowledge on this energy issue a little bit? Is it is it a long-standing issue? At one point, I thought someone said it was a long-standing issue of energy shortages, um, but there also seems to be a sense of sort of immediate crisis of the last couple of years. The energy situation has gotten a lot worse. So, which which or both? Which is it in your mind? And 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 why? If it's a long-standing energy issue, then why hasn't it, in a certain sense, been solved? Is it all the structural reasons that you've talked about, about the weak growth and low, low revenue and so on? But if it's a more immediate crisis, uh, is a different sense, and why did it emerge now? Uh, because, I mean, no one – I mean, no one, I mean, you're in Islamabad, and the power goes out even at the best hotels. I mean, no one likes the situation there. So, so how did the situation get so bad in these last couple of years? Is it, is it a short-term thing? that caught people off guard in a sense, or is it just a long, perpetual, systemic problem? That's a good question. Yes, ma'am. Um, my name's Alicia Milan. I'm a PhD candidate at the Australian National University. Um, Pakistani perceptions of US aid and aid in general are quite negative currently. Um, in your experience, what have been the perceptions of the IMF program, both at the elite level and of ordinary Pakistanis? And did this affect... Um, I guess, the IMS program greatly um, during the last standby arrangement? Um, Sir, I think I've only worked on Pakistan for nearly four years, so I don't have as long a perspective as I should have to properly answer your question. But my feeling is that even in the 1980s, there were outages. But as you've said, it's got a lot more intense in the past few years. And I think the intensity has increased both because of lack of investment but other factors which are um, higher oil prices has increased the cost of generation. Despite the floods in a couple of years, the amount that could be generated by hydro electric has declined because of unsuitable or low rainfall. Um, and the financial pressures in the sector have increased a lot, which have led to a lot of disruption. So I think that's why it's, it's become more acute in the past couple of years as a non-specialist. Um, regarding perceptions of the IMF, I suffer from a bias in my sample. People only say nice things to me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but let me explain a bit about this program, which was deliberate and different from past ones. As you know, in the 1990s, the IMF uh, had a lot of very detailed programs with long matrices uh, of detailed measures in a number of areas. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, we reviewed ourselves. We talked to our shareholders. We talked to our borrowers. We talked to academia. We talked to the media. And we, th we were told, you guys are good at macro. Go back to basics. You've suffered from mission creep. Streamline. Pick a few choice goodies and go for them. And this standby arrangement that expired last year, I think, incorporated that advice. 
if you look at the sort of structural reform targets and benchmarks, there were they were there, but they were extremely focused, and they were focused on things that were seen as macro critical. By which I mean they're important to getting to and maintaining macroeconomic stability. For example, implementing a broad-based consumption tax that was absolutely key to fixing the fiscal deficit, stopping inflation, improving public finances, trying to improve uh, the autonomy or independence of the central bank. Again, we think it's key for reducing and keeping down inflation. Um, strengthening the legal framework for banking supervision. Again, it was key for financial stability. So we made a deliberate effort um, to really pare down and focus on those things that were macro-critical. We the program was not successful in all areas. Also, this program was, by and large, a product of the government. What I'm saying is, if you look at the budget that was sent to Parliament, in, I think, May 2008. Most of the measures there were, were part of the IMF program. There were a few additional things including the IMF program over and above what was in the budget. And when the budget was presented to Parliament in May 2008, or maybe it was early June, uh, there was no IMF program. So I think that this program was more homegrown on the one side, and on the other side, there was a deliberate effort by the IMF to focus, to go back to basics and focus on things that were macro-critical and not have a long and detailed corset uh, for Pakistan and other countries. Uh, I think that that view has received some recognition and acknowledgement. But I would also say that in Pakistan, and there are Pakistanis here, so I'd be happy to be corrected, there is a view in some segments of society that Western institutions do not operate in a way that's favorable to Pakistan itself. So I think you will hear criticism of the IMF on that grounds and on the grounds of overly prescriptive programs in earlier periods. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to take the opportunity to thank Paul for really giving us very thoughtful uh, um, and sometimes a depressing <laughs> oversight of, of, of where Pakistan is. But I think it's important that, you know, as we think of the policy options, both as a country and as an international community, it's important that we get the diagnosis right. I mean, if we don't get the diagnosis right, all the policy prescriptions, uh, in a sense, are less than, uh, less than effective. And so thank you very much both for the work that, you know, you all have been doing with Pakistan over the years and for spending the time uh, and coming here this afternoon to walk us through uh, through what you found in the most recent in the most recent finding uh, the same thanks to Melan for taking the time to share his ideas with us and we will be doing a series of uh, presentations on Pakistan in the months to come I just invite you to get yourself on the mailing list if you're not um, and uh, I hope to see all of you again. Thank you very much for spending your afternoon with us. Thank you.